So, Mark. Yes. In this movie, at one point, Gene Kelly engages in a wonderful musical declaration of love. And he says that in order to do it properly, it needs to happen in front of a sunset. And I was wondering, if you were going to make a musical declaration of love, what backdrop would you think is most necessary to make it happen, to make it true? So I would say a small, dimly lit pod in a studio outside Atlanta, Georgia. No visual contact with another person, just talking. Well, and singing. And singing. Yes, of course. I'm honestly shocked there was no sung declaration of love on that show. You know it got renewed for two more seasons. There's still time. Yeah, the, I'm not going to watch anything else. I, I don't think they'll recapture the magic of the first season. It does seem like the kind of thing where once it is possible for there to be a formula for how to find romance on Love is Blind, people will follow that formula. The way there are kind of rigid rules to how The Bachelor goes. Right. There's just going to be the same people doing the same things. There's going to be nothing new. During this time of social distancing, there is an unofficial spinoff called DC is Blind, which is specifically for people in DC in quarantine to try to find their, quote, quarantine bay. I can't say that much about it because I did not even make it through everybody's intro video, but... I know that one question on the application was, tell us who you are on Love is Blind. So I feel like that is a very strong argument for the tropes are created and they will endure. I just am so mad that it was like a a few weeks after watching this show where I just was sitting and had the thought, they were just talking on the phone. (laughs) They invented phone calls on this show. Just more complicated phone calls. Well, and you're required to propose at the end of phone call number six or whatever it was. Wait, what? Yeah, you only get to meet your love is blind partner person if one of you proposes and the other one accepts. But Do you not know this? Yes. Also, did you not know that there were two couples that did reach the proposal that just got cut from the show because they didn't have the budget? And do you know that one of those couples went on their own little getaway and at the end of the getaway, the woman said, just kidding, I want to date a different person from the pods. What? Yeah, the background of the show is honestly what they should do for season two. Anyway, Will, where would you want to sing your love confession? You know, here's the thing. It may not be a surprise to anybody, but I feel like it's got to be a train station. One, train stations are awesome. There are trains there. Two, inherently romantic with people coming and going. And you've got the chase. You've got the guy in the coma on the tracks who's got to be rescued. There are like so many great romantic things that can happen when the trains are whizzing by. The 30th Street Station in Philadelphia would actually be a nice place. That would be fantastic. That's a great train station. Fun fact, I have spent the night in that train station reading about the history of Coptic Christianity in Egypt. Did you use that to sing about your love to somebody? Were yes, you in love how... with an Egyptian copt? Um, no, I was doing thesis research, but on the last episode I was on Love Actually, I made a comment about my husband, which was a joke, but I don't know if it read that way, so I think I need to keep this bit going. So I met my husband in 30th Street Station the night I spent the night there, and then I think I said last time he made me 
pasta or sang to me about pasta. So he sang to me about pasta in 30th Street Station, and that is how he wooed me. This is a bizarrely meta way to try to build continuity. We've recorded so many episodes since then, I have absolutely no idea what you're talking about. It has been weighing on me that your listeners might think that I'm married because I thought I was making a joke, and then in listening to the episode, it sounded real. So I'm just going to lean in now. Well, I'll make sure my mom knows that you were not married. Thank you, Mark. Did you answer, Rachel? (laughs) She did not. I haven't yet. So I think I would need the backdrop to be just a giant photo of my face, but a very realistic photo where like all my pores are blown up, any like stray hairs from not having plucked my eyebrows recently. Because you think about if you're declaring your love, you want this to be someone who can see your face when you wake up first thing in the morning and so I want the most realistic possible rendering of that but at a large scale and if they can deal with that then I can trust them to love me no matter what. Are you saying you don't midge basil it and wake up an hour before your husband, shower, get dressed, do your face, and then pretend to be asleep and wake up that way? To be fair, I think one could make an argument that that is something I would do. But... I, again, I just have to go in the complete opposite direction. I'm fine midge-mazeling as long as I know I don't have to midge-mazel. This is a reference to the fact that you wore heels to undergrad college classes, yes? I was thinking more about the fact that in undergrad I used to iron my t-shirts, but, you know, it's all kind of goes together. I think my real answer is inside my Animal Crossing Island house. I'm very proud of it. I know nothing about that game except that people seem very pleased with doing very simple things, and maybe that is the whole game, but I just, like, see screenshots on the internet, and I can't figure it out. The game is you're in crippling debt to an evil raccoon, and to get out of it, you have to pick weeds and go fishing and sell fruit. But you also get to customize your character and look cute and decorate your house. But how can you pay to decorate your house if you're in so much debt to the evil raccoon? Because I will say, he doesn't charge interest, and there's no payment schedule. So is he really that evil? He's not that evil, but I will. when I was a kid, my friend had it on GameCube and I would post mean things about him on the bulletin board because I didn't like being told I have to go into debt without getting a choice. Is this like a giant raccoon? Is it a normal size raccoon? No, it's- I Does mean, the raccoon speak? He's actually a tanuki and he does speak. His name is Tom Nook and all the villagers in Animal Crossing except for you are animals. Okay. Yeah, it's a great game. It's the only thing I feel like I have control over in my life right now. You know, one other thing you have control over. Starting the show. When the episode starts, yeah. Welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark and I'm gay. And I'm Will and I'm a ginger. This is an investigative podcast committed to examining the most pressing, urgent issues of our day. This is the number one thing we as a society need to figure out (laughs) right now. Does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And are these people actually dateable or even likable? It doesn't matter if their romance is a main plot or a one-scene flirtation, or if there's like some fun flirty stuff at the beginning, and then they just decide they're in a relationship and don't really address it after that. We will dig in and see what's there. This is our mission. It is our quest. It's our duty. And we won't stop until we've found an answer. I just thought about the time Nick started this show, and I got a shudder down my spine. That was a great day. Um, This week, we have a different guest. We're joined, as you've heard already, by our good friend, Rachel. Hi, I am so excited to be here, and I can't believe they let me keep coming back on the show, given how all over the place my episodes usually end up. Well, they take a long time to edit, but I have nowhere else to be. (laughs) 
If you can't tell, I don't know what the world will look like in the few weeks since this came out, but we're over a week into quarantine at this point, and it feels it. And how? This episode will come out on April 27th, which, as of right now, is the day I'm scheduled to return to school. Whether that happens is very much an open question. It is a little bit stressful to think about what the world will look like when this episode comes out. So... Let's not. So instead, let's think about the romance, question mark, in the film Singing in the Rain. More like romance exclamation point. It's definitely there. Yeah, I guess the romancing of the characters is very quick, but the love remains. And we love the love. We do love the love. And I will say, I think one really nice thing about this movie is the idea that you can have romance blossoming in your life and it can make you very happy, but that doesn't mean it's taking over everything. There can still be other aspects. You can still be a multifaceted person, even though you're in love. And I think that a lot of movies only focus on the romance when it exists. And I like that the romance in this is something that's clearly very present, but it's not the only or even the most important thing. So Mark, had you seen this movie before? Many times. Okay, I had not. You've never seen it before? I had seen scenes from it, but I had never watched the whole movie. It's so good. I mean, it is less of a movie than a collection of scenes. I would hard disagree on that. I think this is a really, really well put together movie. And the way that it all fits together is part of what makes it play so well. It is really good, but it is also one of the movies where you watch it and you're like, Comden and Green just had that song and we're like, how do we put it in here? That's actually not even what happened. So at the time, Arthur Freed was the head of MGM's musicals division and he was trying to capitalize on all of the songs that he had co-written with Nasio Herb Brown during the first era of MGM musicals in like the 1930s. So he was hiring people to write shows around a bunch of songs that he and Brown had written in the past. And so Compton and Green only wrote two songs for this movie. They wrote uh, Make Him Laugh and Moses Supposes. They did write the story, but based around songs that Arthur Freed selected. And it was their idea to set it in the transition from the silent era to talkies because they were like, well, all of these songs are from that period. So we can make them make sense by setting the movie in that time. That makes a lot of sense for how the movie is. But they do do a really good job of fitting all the songs together in a way that makes sense. But it's also you can tell that Gene Kelly cares about dancing the most. Yeah, I mean, which pays off in this movie. The oh, for sure. Is really the dancing is probably is the best part. Also, Debbie Reynolds, just how is she 20 and holding her own, if not better than Gene Kelly? I mean, she's really great in this movie. And this is really early in her career. Right. This is, I mean, because she is 20 when she films this movie, I think. Right. This movie is 1952. She was discovered by agents for Warner Brothers when she won the 1948 Miss Burbank pageant. And then she did a couple movies for Warners. They stopped making musicals, so she moved over to MGM. But even then, like, she wasn't a trained dancer. She was a gymnast at first. And so a big part of her working on this movie is getting up to that point, which is 
stressful and literally painful in a lot of ways. Yeah, I like how they show the transferability of skills, where as a dancer, he has such control over his body that he makes a good stuntman. Yes. And then I guess with her story, you can see that gymnastics can translate well because it's all just about having control over your body. And then from gymnastics to dancing, I guess the main thing would be learning rhythm because you have the flexibility and strength. Unless you're doing rhythmic gymnastics. It's true. It It is... Possibly one of the great losses of the Olympics being delayed this year that we will not get to watch our rhythmic gymnastics, a thing I do enjoy watching during the Olympics. There's a lot of other things in the Olympics that I enjoy. Synchronized diving being up there is one of the best because it's so impressive, but also so random. Have you ever watched synchronized diving? Oh, of course. Uh, Those are the best parts of the Olympics. Now, Rachel, you'd seen this movie a bunch. I have. My dad is a really big Gene Kelly fan. But the time watching it that stands out the most to me is we used to have a tradition that every year between Christmas and New Year's, my dad and I would pick some film franchise and watch all those movies. So we did The Godfather one year and we did Star Wars. And one year, instead of a proper franchise, we just said Gene Kelly. I think that's a valid choice. I think that fits within the same idea of a film franchise. It honestly might have been my favorite year, too, because as hardcore fans of the show will know, I either danced myself, which is the correct answer, or just know a lot about ballet history. Uh, this is a throwback to the Titanic episode. How many of my old episodes can I reference in this one? But How I many more do you have? Two. It's uh, Love Actually and... Well, you already referenced that one. Oh, I did. Yeah. So yeah. Love Actually, Crazy Stupid Love and Titanic. So I just have to reference Love Act or Crazy Stupid Love at this point. Anyway, I grew up dancing and so I really loved watching movies like this and I did more ballet, but still grew up with a very big appreciation for more kind of show dancing. But the great thing about Singing in the Rain is that it has both of those things because it has this whole ballet sequence that is just incredible. Oh, it rules. That's the one with the giant flowing fabric. Yes. That's got to have been impossible to do. Oh, they had three like airplane engine fans to create the wind to blow that. How does her face not just like you see only teeth and gums from the wind blowing her mouth completely back? Because if you're a true ballet dancer, you have total control over all your muscles, even the muscles in your face. Honestly, watching the amount of wind and then staring at her face, I was like, did they just put so much makeup on that it's immovable completely? Also possible. There is a lot of makeup in this movie. This was the first time I really noticed how thick it's slathered on to all of the actors. Well, also, I mean, you think about the exertion that these people are going through in this movie. The amount of sweat that they do not show is truly insane. Donald O'Connor had to be hospitalized for four days after shooting Make Him Laugh because of the exertion combined with his four-pack-a-day smoking habit. That's so many cigarettes. So many cigarettes. How did he get through the shooting? He should have been, like, puffing four at a time even during the shooting to get through that many. Well, you will remember that a cigar is 
a very small plot point for him. So at least he could feel a little bit comfortable by having some tobacco in the film. I also heard that Gene Kelly did Sing It in the Rain with a 103 degree fever. That is correct. What was going on? In a wool suit that kept shrinking the longer they shot the scene. What was going on with this movie? That one, especially the suit, feels like an avoidable conflict. You just... One would think. Get a new one. And it does seem, given some of the other scenes in the movie, like a lot of thought was put into the costuming. So it's weird that that was not considered. I mean, I think it might just be that so much thought was put into the costuming that even one minor sacrifice to the vision may have been considered too much. That's a good point. And also thinking about, I'm guessing a suit is one of the less flashy costumes if you think about the fact that at one point there's an entire song just about women's clothing so maybe it was not wanting to sacrifice the vision and maybe it was that they were so focused on some of the other costumes that they weren't really thinking about the consequences of one wool suit the most surprising part of that song is when they were listing the qualities that are good in a woman they actually said smart i gasped I was like, in this era, they sing a song about a woman having a brain? That's progress. I mean, the movie, absolutely. I mean, it has a lot of fun at Lena's expense, but in the form of Kathy is very much in favor of that kind of idea. It is. It's just really in a song like that one, hearing she has to be smart when the whole thing is about clothes was very much a surprise to me. It was a nice change from all the negging and a bit of creepiness that Don had been showing towards Kathy up to that point. So... Singing in the Rain was released in 1952. It was actually directed by Gene Kelly with Stanley Donan. They also are credited as the co-choreographers. This is their second movie as directors. Their previous one was the film version of On the Town, which is also a Comden and Green musical. And the movie was like kind of a modest success. It made $3.2 million in its initial release. And it won the WGA Award for Best Written Musical, which is not an award that exists anymore because we don't make a lot of musicals. It was also nominated for Best Original Score at the Oscars, and Gene Hagen was nominated for the Oscar for Supporting Actress for playing Lena Lamont, which is a fun nomination. A good choice. She's very good in this. Yeah, and Donald O'Connor won the Golden Globe for Best Actor in a Musical or Comedy, which I thought was interesting because he would 100% be run as a supporting actor these days. Oh, completely. Because movies are basically allowed to have one lead in awards campaigns these days. Yeah, when they had to choose between Olivia Coleman, Rachel Weisz, and Emma Stone, it was very interesting. Emma Stone is the lead of the favorite. Yeah, I would agree with that. The movie also, of course, is number five on the 2007 version of the AFI Top 100 American Films list. And it has appeared twice on the Sight and Sound list by the British Film Institute of the 10 Best Movies of All Time. It appeared on the list in 1982 and 2002. And three of the songs were on the AFI's Top 100 Songs list. Singing in the Rain came in at 3rd, Make Em Laugh at 49th, and Good Morning at 72nd. I would have put Good Morning much higher than that. I didn't go deep on the list. I like it a lot, but I also associate it really strongly with the opening of The Magic Kingdom every day. Part of the little show that they put on when the characters come in on the Walt Disney World Railroad involves singing that. I think Good Morning is maybe my favorite of the numbers in the movie. I think Make Him Laugh, there's just an undeniable quality to the comedy and the movement, the frenetic pace when he starts doing the backflips yeah everything has gone out the window that's true it is kind of hard to watch because you're like this is so good but also this man is dying 
in front of us. Well, he's smoking four packs a day. I know, that part is self-inflicted. But he's just truly killing himself in front of us. Donald O'Connor literally said, like, because he was, they had people going on and he was kind of improvising different physical bits on different takes. And he did say at one point, I started worrying that the only way I could top what was going on as the song escalated was to literally kill myself. I just marvel to think how his lung capacity must have been if he was, yes, he was hospitalized, but he was still able to do all of that smoking four packs a day. So if he had not had that handicap, I feel like he would have been an endurance athlete in the Olympics or something. Just the size of his lungs, if they weren't constantly filled with smoke, would be something to behold. So he was, uh, he came from a vaudeville family. Both of his parents were vaudeville performers. He started dancing in vaudeville shows when he was like 13 months old. They would just like hold the scruff of his neck and just like have his like legs kind of move around. But he didn't have any dance training until he was a teenager in Hollywood. So he came kind of late to dance education. And he talked a lot about the fact that because he was doing like showy vaudeville stuff, he mostly danced from the top up, whereas trained dancers, a lot of the focus is on what your legs are doing. And so he had to learn to do that. He also had like a really rough life where like a bunch of his family died when he was pretty young. Later on, he like had a bunch of medical issues for a while. He was taking nitroglycerin pills to try to combat some challenges he was having. Like it's it's, it's a rough time for Donald O'Connor. He also appeared a bunch on the Colgate Comedy Hour, which I discovered today was a real thing and not just a joke on I Think You Should Leave. I was wondering, you sent me that Snapchat and I was like, this sounds familiar. No idea where it's referenced. Tim Heidecker in the Game of Celebrity sketch on I Think You Should Leave, keeps citing, like, jazz musicians from the Colgate Hour. Oh, right. What a time in TV. Basically, just anyone could get a variety show is the vibe I got when you look at- This one ran for five seasons! Yeah, that would last in a while. But to make the case for Good Morning, I think the synchronization of the three dancers in that is what really elevates it to me, because they are together the whole time. And just the last move when they tip over the couch and all collapse at exactly the same moment is just staggering. That's a really wonderful moment. Rachel, do you have a favorite number in the movie? Uh, Don't do this to me. I think I am. Can I count the ballet dream sequence? Or I guess as a whole number, the Broadway song is very good, but it's also very long, and the ballet sequence within it is definitely my favorite part, which feels kind of wrong to say because the singing in this movie is so good, and there's not singing in that particular part, but I'm a sucker for really good ballet. That's also one of the moments where this movie goes in a really unexpected direction and achieves a big part of its greatness is when it's willing to spend a long time and commit to this surreal interpretive dance, setting aside the words, the singing, in a movie that is so much about how things sound in this transition from silent to talkies, that it then still, in one of its most compelling sequences, offers a testament to the power of silent movement. I also kind of like the fact that... In a movie in which, for the most part, everyone you care about ends up getting everything they want, it's kind of nice to have a scene that's focusing on wanting something that you can never have. One thing I thought about a lot during this movie is you can tell Gene Kelly was popular in Hollywood because I can't think of many other movies where the head of a studio is portrayed as a kind and benevolent friend. 
Well, Arthur Freed actually was kind of well-known for getting out of the way and letting directors and choreographers come up with their own vision of what the movie would look like, which was very much an anomaly at the time. So the studio head in this movie, R.F. Simpson, his initials R.F., are supposed to be a reference to Arthur Freed, and he is meant to very specifically be a reference to that, and still... Freed's habit of charging onto set and making declarations, like when he bursts in and starts yelling about the cords on the ground being a safety hazard. Which, they are. Yeah, you should have gaffed those. But that moment is so good. It's interesting the lenses this movie gives into the silent era, where something you wouldn't really think about, but the fact that, yes, of course, you could film scenes for wildly different movies on adjacent sound stages, and it doesn't matter because you're not going to have sound pollution because there's no sound. And you can also just have a conversation while you're filming something. Right, as long as it looks good. Right. I also thought it was cool to see the directing happening as the scene is happening and thinking about how different the rehearsal process had to become once it was not silent anymore. It reminded me of Ed Wood, where because Wood used voiceover so heavily, he did exactly that, where he's directing Tor Johnson through the scene, like, you're walking through, you're you're fumbling with the door. You know, the real character would struggle to go through doors every day. It's really fun to see the process of silent film. It was actually really fascinating. We know this intellectually, and it's a thing that I tell my students, but the fact that people in this period did not live in a black and white world... And I think about that, but it's weird because on some level, I am used to thinking of silent film as being a piece of a black and white world. And so it's kind of strange to see people doing what is very clearly the motions and what I recognize as silent film acting in full color. It's also interesting to see how colorful they still made the sets and her dress and how many details there are on the dress. Because you would kind of think like, you don't really need to do that. When it's in black and white. I mean, white. you can tell gradient, but it could yeah. all be gradient. But, I mean, that might be just because the movie is in color, so they wanted a pretty dress. I also really liked the idea of having somebody whose job it is to play mood music for the actors during their scenes as a way of getting them into it. And I wonder if some of the colorfulness of the costumes and the sets and still being devoted to that could have been kind of in the same vein where it's like, even if the audience ultimately isn't going to be able to see this, this will make you act better because it will help you be more in the moment. I really now kind of want to watch early, early talkies and see if I can find the microphones. It is very funny, that early version of the Dueling Cavalier, where the sound cuts in every time she turns towards her shoulder. Yeah, and the sound of the pearls. I think my favorite take is when it's still in the bush, and she keeps swinging her head back and forth, and you hear the sound get slightly louder and then go away. And that's also part of the challenge of adjusting to a different kind of acting. In silent film... It is an exaggerated form of physical acting because you can't give a vocal performance. You can do a more still, stationary, more mild performance because you have your voice doing the work as well. Do you think this movie would be as high on all these lists if it wasn't about Hollywood? I know you can't really separate the idea of singing in the rain in Hollywood, but I'm just curious if Hollywood loves to award itself. I don't know. I mean, yeah, I don't think it's possible to divorce singing in the rain from Hollywood. It's a movie fundamentally about Hollywood in every part. Yeah, I think five is really high on the AFI list. I think it's really, really good. I 
I think this movie is kind of an incredible marriage of all of the things that make a movie fit together. When we talked about West Side Story, I made a comment about, yeah, it's color and movement and imagery all together. And you said, yeah, that's what a movie is. And I felt the same way watching this one. It's all of the pieces of a movie being executed together at a top level. Right. I just am thinking, you know, West Side Story as an example is, I'm trying to find its number on the AFI list, but it's really not that high. It's number two on the movie musical list. So West Side Story is number 51 on the AFI top 100 list. And I don't think there's that big of a gap between the two, if that makes sense, in terms of being a musical. So that's why I find it interesting that this is so high on the list as compared to West Side Story, which I think has also many very interesting things to say about society and politics and stuff, even if it's done by characters in brownface. I wonder if part of that, too, is not necessarily the Hollywood factor, but this is fundamentally a much happier movie than West Side Story is. And I think that West Side Story earns its desperation and sadness, but I also find it kind of refreshing to watch a really good movie that's also a really happy movie. I think that's a good point because I think we often... This is a challenge that the AFI list and that, you know, that the Oscars face of often undervaluing the comedy or undervaluing more cheerful stories. It's easy to see the importance of something that is a bummer. Um, But there is uh, impressiveness and there, there is merit to some of these more exuberant stories. I mean, that's that's what's so exciting about something like this, a movie that is not really about people having major, major challenges. It is just about people executing at a really high level. But it's able to do that and still make you feel like there's stakes and still make you feel like you're invested. Mm -hmm. And I think that that can be challenging because there are some movies that are trying to be happier, cheerful, or comedic, and you just have a very hard time caring about it because it doesn't give you a reason to and it doesn't evoke empathy. And I don't know that I would say this movie evokes empathy, but you do care about what's happening. Definitely. Speaking of West Side Story, though, Rita Moreno is credited very high for not having any lines in this movie. She originally had more to do and that got cut before they finished filming. Okay. That makes a lot of sense because I saw her name and I was just like, oh, I can't. I forgot Rita Moreno is in this. And I was trying to think of where she is in this. And then I realized she's not except for 30 seconds of silence. Yeah, she originally had a much larger role. Okay, what a shame. Well, she'll be back in the Spielberg West Side Story in December. If it comes out. (laughs) We'll see where we are in December. I feel all right about December movies right now. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know if I feel all right about anything right now. I guess my question for December movies would be, like, is this movie done in its final form right now? So that is a valid question. Yeah. And even if all the filming is done, other people still need to work on it. And it's possible that those people will not be able to do their jobs. And I'm not the one making decisions here, but personally, I would rather West Side Story be delayed but come out as the best possible version it could be instead of having people either working on it without their full resources, working on it in a worse state than they might be, whether that be from illness or just from stress. So I don't feel confident about anything happening on time just because I think it's possible that a lot of people 
can't do their jobs right now to get something to that state. And I highly doubt it's close to being finished. I know Cats was an exception, but people work on these movies up until the last minute. That's especially true with visual effects heavy heavy movies. But yeah, they work on them right up to that point. And even if this isn't a super visual effect heavy movie, it's March right now. We're a very long time from December. And maybe that means they will have time to get it done. But it also means right now it probably is not close to done. Should we start talking about the romance of this movie? Yeah, let's do it. Let's talk about Singing in the Rain. All right. So every week we break down the romance of a movie into five points. And this week, as our guest, Rachel, will you please guide us through the five points of the Donna and Kathy romance with a bit of Lena sprinkled in? Happily. So point one of this romance. Are these rumors true that wedding bells are soon to ring for you and Lena? Well, Lena and I have no statement to make at the present time. We're just good friends. I think it is necessary for point one to give the context of how each character is coming in and because I am trying to be less of a monster when I'm a guest on this show, I did not do a point zero. So starting off, Dawn Lockwood is a big movie star in Hollywood and his main co-star is Lena Lamont. And they don't actually get along super well But the studio kind of plays up their relationship and there are a lot of things in gossip magazines about them because people want to think that these two co-stars are also in love in real life. Which was very common for studios to do during especially the silent era. They would build up imaginary biographies for people and that included imaginary relationships. Of course, the root of the animosity between Don and Lena, which is really one-sided, comes from the fact that Don got into the movie business as a stuntman, having spent time as a vaudeville dancer. And when he was a stuntman, Lena was really rude to him and would refuse to talk to him or really engage with him. And as soon as he got cast as a lead, she was willing to talk to him and he was like, no, I'm not interested in you if you only care about me when I appear successful. And she gives that whole backstory in about one minute of silent acting. Yeah, one of the clever things the movie does is the way that it mutes Lena until her voice would have meaning for the audience. I also love this movie seeing a world in which being raised rich and getting all the best treatment stuff is highlighted over the bootstrap narrative that he actually lived. Because if this were today, the studio would be playing up his whole bootleg. He was a poor kid who taught himself to dance and made it onto Broadway and then was a stuntman where he was discovered the American dream. They would never lie about him being rich as a child. But instead, they're trying to sell glamour. Right. And his whole star identity is around glamour. Exactly. Dignity. One more thing about Don and Lena's relationship that I thought was really funny is pretty early on in the movie... Lena makes a comment to Don about their engagement and he says, oh no, you've been reading the gossip magazines again, haven't you? And just this idea that how she gets information about her own relationship is from external news sources. And she's shown later in the movie to be pretty cunning. I think, especially given her voice, the movie wants us to think that she is just kind of silly and stupid and 
doesn't really understand things, but given how cunning she's later shown to be, I kind of like the idea that she thinks she can just eventually convince Dawn, you know, everyone else is saying this, so it's probably true, and that the silliness is a little bit more of a ruse than we're initially led to believe. Yeah, I don't think she believes this. She is trying to wear him down into believing it with her. Yeah, I think that makes sense. So she really wants this trumped up relationship to be real, and Don has no interest in it. Point one. Point two. Point two. Uh, Mr. Lockwood, I really can't tell you how sorry I am about taking you for a criminal before, but it was understandable under the circumstances. Sure. I knew I'd seen you. Which of my pictures have you seen? I don't remember. I saw one once. You saw him once. Yes, I think you were dueling, and there was a girl, Lena Lamont. No, I don't go to the movies much. If you've seen one, you've seen them all. So we have just seen the premiere of a Lockwood and Lamont movie. The Royal Rascal. And it is a huge success, and so... They're on the way to the after party. Dawn's best friend Cosmo is driving him there and Cosmo's car breaks down. Dawn steps out of the car and is immediately totally rushed by fans who start tearing his tuxedo and screaming. And so to get away, he jumps over a bus and into Kathy's convertible. That's a great sequence of him like running along to the top of the trolley. It's like some Roger Rabbit nonsense. (laughs) Can you imagine if you saw a celebrity do that just to get out of the way of fans? Just literally jumping on top of a bus instead of trying to just get on board. That's also the kind of thing that I wouldn't expect to see as much today in part because there is an extent to which celebrities are I think less mystical today because of social media. Like we see them going through their daily life all the time. So seeing them out in the world is yes, people would like rush up and want to take a picture with them or something like that, but it is less unbelievable. I don't read the gossip magazines, but I have a feeling there's fewer stars. They're just like us stories because social media has already kind of removed that barrier. I read a really interesting article a few weeks ago that was talking about how social media, yes, has made us more aware of stars in their daily lives, but to some extent has also turned acquaintances into the same sort of celebrity where there are people I went to high school with and have not spoken to since, but I'm kind of aware of what's going on in their lives because they posted on Instagram or they posted on Facebook. And so this idea that your acquaintances achieve a certain level of celebrity because you're following their lives without actually interacting with them, but at the same time, it makes celebrities feel closer to you because they're in kind of the same bucket as your acquaintances from high school that you don't talk to anymore. That sounds very interesting. I can try to find it yeah. and send it to you. Cool. Drop the link. Great. Will do. Um, But another comparison I wanted to make, not between high school acquaintances and celebrities, but watching this scene specifically, I thought about the film American Graffiti, which I watched a few weeks ago. It focuses so much on California car culture, which is something you don't see quite as much in this movie, but do see a little bit, especially in this scene. And especially the idea that Dawn just jumps into this random car and says, hey, where are you going? Is this close? Can you take me there? And in American Graffiti, you see people driving around and these are 
teenagers, young adults, and they're just kind of jumping into each other's cars or someone, a guy will drive up and say, hey, are there any pretty girls who want to go for a ride with me? And I thought it was interesting how these two films were kind of reminiscent of each other in showing this culture, but showing it in two very different ways. The one being these kids just kind of living their lives and driving around for fun. And in this one, Dawn jumping into a car, which is alarming, but doesn't seem to be as alarming as I would expect this to be today. And he's doing that as an escape i would have crashed that car if i was driving it and someone jumped in she is a great driver if she can manage to maintain control through all of this hey kathy's a rock star also that is a nice car for someone who is a showgirl so moving on in the point dawn jumps into kathy's car and they have a kind of tense conversation at first she is alarmed and then she says <laughs> understandably <I recognize> so <laughs> your face you must be a criminal because I recognize your face. I've seen you with numbers on your shirt. But also, I think if some strange man jumped into your car, you would probably lean towards a more negative view of them oh, at first. 100%. She is totally fair in this situation. Okay, so here's the deal. We learn later in the movie that she has seen a number of Don Lockwood's movies. Does she in this moment actually recognize him? No. I say no. I also think no. I just wanted to clarify. Also because in a deleted sequence, she tells a billboard of Don that she was once the president of his fan club. I am glad they cut that. I enjoy the idea that she is a fan, but she's not obsessive fan. Yeah. So a policeman comes by while they're stopped at a light. She says, policeman, this is a criminal. And he says, why, that's Don Lockwood. And she says, oh, okay. And discovers that they are going in a similar direction. He asks her to drop him off at a specific street corner. And it seems like he just expects her to be awed by him and the fact that he's a movie star. And when she's not, he's pretty put off. But she goes even further and makes fun of him with, oh, well, you know, movie acting is one thing, but... I act on the stage, and that's where the real acting is. Yeah, they're not very nice to each other in this first scene, and he is very in her personal space for a woman who is driving. (laughs) Again, I was very distracted by how unsafe the road... the whole driving sequences. He was like trying to kiss her and I'm like, she needs to have her eyes on the road, sir. Yeah, that was also very stressful to me. I occasionally will try to drive one-handed, like with just one hand on the wheel and I can do it, but I always get just slightly nervous when I'm doing it because I feel like I really should have two hands there and I can't imagine somebody trying to make out with me while I was driving. Also, she is not giving out make out with me vibes, so it's oh, absolutely very not. uncomfortable to watch, especially in a coronavirus age. <laughs> and like you were saying, along the way, they're being really rude to each other and she's telling him he's not a real actor She's a real actor. And then he gets annoyed by that and also is making fun of her when he learns that she's not actually in any place right now. One cool thing about this scene that Will pointed out earlier, so he gets credit for noticing this, is there is a video backdrop while they are driving, which is very cool. Yeah, not a thing that I'm used to seeing in driving scenes, at least when they're like driving through a city. I didn't even notice. It looks really good. Like, I didn't clock any weirdness behind them. Like, it just looked natural. So they get to the premiere party. Kathy drops off Don. He goes in. They're partying around. 
So she drops him off at a street corner, and then she pulls up to a house very close by. And says, I'm one of the Coconut Grove girls. Right. And the guy says, oh, go around the back. Mm-hmm. So they haven't seen each other, but in a shocking twist, when they bring out a cake to celebrate the premiere, Kathy's the one that jumps out of the cake. And starts dancing, and Don is immediately thoroughly amused and wants to chase her down to talk to her about this. Because she had the audacity to look down on his career, and she is a dancing showgirl. One of my favorite jokes in the movie is when he says, Now that I know where you live, let me walk you home, while gesturing to the cake that she had jumped out of. It's a good joke. But she's annoyed. She's really embarrassed that Don knows this about her. She's just trying to get away. And he's saying, like, look, you know, maybe, you know, you're such a great actor, you can teach me something. And she announces that she'll teach him something she learned from the movies and grabs a cake and goes to slam it in his face. But he dodges, and so she slams Lena in the face instead. Keep in mind, Lena has been very annoyed that Don is talking to any other woman, even a showgirl who I'm assuming she would look down on. Right, and now she's mad because she got a cake in the face. So we cut to three weeks later, I think. And Don has been searching. Oh, I guess this is point three. Point three. And Don has been searching for Kathy, but cannot find her. do know that she lost her job at the Coconut Grove because of the events of the premiere party. She wasn't going to, but Lena called and insisted that Kathy be fired. Right. And she tells Don it's not because of the cake, it's because he seemed to like her, which shows how vindictive she really is. So ultimately, Cosmo sees... Kathy dancing on a set at the studio and runs and gets Dawn because he's been looking for her forever or for very intently for the last few weeks. And they're relieved to realize that she now has a job here. And they also realize that if Lena finds out she has a job, Lena will get Kathy fired. And so Dawn vouches for her in her getting a slightly bigger part as Zelda's younger sister in Zelda is another actor for this. She's the zip girl. And then Dawn pretty easily convinces Kathy that he's actually a very nice person and cares about her and is upset that she got fired. And then roughly 15 seconds later, pulls her into an empty studio with this sunset backdrop and sings a song about how he loves her. And then they're in love. (laughs) And basically, they're now just in love forever. Which I kind of like, because the movie is able to keep focusing on its Hollywood plotline. And they're in love, and there will be some conflict later on. But for the most part, we're just like, yes, of course. We don't need to go through all the motions of like showing you how they do all of this. We're just like, cool, they're into each other, move along. I like it, but it's probably going to knock a couple points off the believability scale. Oh, of course. <laughs> but they're in love, and I think that's... It. Now, if he had done that song at a train station, totally believable. Do you think he would have still sung the song to Kathy if the sunset backdrop had actually been a giant photo of her face? Pores included. Probably not. I don't think Don Lockwood is. 
the least shallow person on the planet. And that's why a giant photo of your face is what you need in these situations. (laughs) Weed out the shallow ones. So they get together, which I think takes us to point four. Yes, point four. The jazz singer has come out. Talkies have become a thing. And the studio is a little concerned because Lena's voice is very shrill and she's had some elocution lessons and they have only kind of worked. Good morning. Good morning. We've talked the whole night through. Good morning. Good morning to you. And it's not just shrill. She has an occasionally quite thick accent that she can't seem to shake that cultural stereotypes are going to look down on. Right. She says can't. Like really nasal. And she throws around ain'ts a lot. Yeah. It's hard to place her accent. Uh, I believe it's from uh, Hollywood <laughs> accent box. <laughs> it's like the woman box and the actress from SNL. She has to pick through and piece together an accent from various pieces. Exactly. So they are very excited at first about the idea of making a talkie until they remember Lena and they film it. And they have a premiere for a, or not a premiere, preview. For the Dueling Cavalier. Which is exactly the same as the movie from the opening of the film. The Royal Rascal. (laughs) And it doesn't go over well. In part, this is because Lena just cannot really adjust to the talkie. But one thing I appreciated is that it also shows Dawn having some trouble At one point, when we're seeing them filming, he says to the director, I don't really like this line of dialogue. Can I just say, I love you, I love you, I love you, like I usually do. And the director says, sure, do whatever. And then that, I love you, I love you, I love you, is one of the things that people are making fun of after the preview. And so I appreciated that it wasn't just Lena who was the laughingstock. It was showing this entire studio has not yet figured out how to move into making talkies instead. Right, because it's a lot of technical issues. The sound of the pearls drowning out all the dialogue. At one point, the film gets stuck and the sound and the film are not synchronized anymore. Or like when Don throws his walking stick off screen, which is like supposed to be very dramatic and meaningful, but instead you just like hear these loud clatters of it falling to the ground. Yeah, it's almost like in cartoons when they throw something off screen and glass shatters, no matter what is over there. That's the vibe you get from it. So everyone laughs. So they've got to figure out a way to salvage the movie or their careers will be ruined. And that's when they have a great idea. Specifically, Cosmo has a great idea. Yeah, because Cosmo rules. Cosmo is great. Yeah, Cosmo is by far the brains and beauty and talent of this operation. I love him so much. But yes, they have the idea to turn the Dueling Cavalier into a musical in the next six weeks. And I was watching this with my friend who's a filmmaker, and you could see the color drain out of his face at the idea of turning a film into a musical in six weeks. But also, like, for the film industry of the 1920s, not, like, a very difficult thing, but not a totally unbelievable thing to try. When you think about the pace at which they turned out movies in the 20s. Right, how they released, like, 500 movies a year. And so Cosmo came up with this idea while hanging out with Don and Kathy, and they're all really excited about it until it occurs to them that Lena, as Cosmo says, can't sing, can't act, and can't dance. 
She's a triple threat. Uh, I love Cosmo. So Kathy's going to dub it, but they got to keep it secret. Which reminded me, we've talked a lot in this episode about West Side Story, of the fact that Marnie Nixon dubbed over Natalie Wood's singing in West Side Story, and nobody told Natalie Wood. I also want to point out that it was Cosmo's idea that Kathy could step in and be Lena's voice because Cosmo is the best. I've intentionally not brought him up that much yet because I know or I knew that once I did, he would be all I could talk about. And now we have reached that point. So the rest of this episode is the Cosmo show. I did really like that Don was the one who said this might ruin Kathy's career. We can't do this. I'm worried about her instead of thinking of himself. Right, like if she gets locked into just doing voiceover instead of getting to be an actor in her own right. Right, she'll become Marnie Nixon, who very few people actually know, even though she was the voice of so many celebrities. So the remake of the movie goes over really well. It's kind of a hit, or they have the sense that it will be once it comes out, and nobody told Lena that Kathy would be talking over her, but Zelda finds out and tells Lena, and Lena comes to RF, the studio head, and basically says, if you reveal that this is Kathy's voice, which they were planning to do, I will sue you. And here in my contract is the clause that allows me to do that. Right, they were going to build a whole publicity campaign around, like, starring Don Lockwood and Lena Lamont with the voice of Kathy whatever. Kathy Selden. And build a campaign around that and then like reveal her in the next movie. It's like, now see her face, the great beauty. But Lena leaks to every paper in town an exclusive story. <laughs> I love that. An ex- I gave an exclusive to every paper in town. She leaks that the studio is saying she is just magnificent and her voice is incredible and Because of that, to walk that back, the studio would have to say she is a liar, this is not true, which is bad for the studio in general because she is their leading lady. They want her to have a good reputation. And especially because there's a clause in her contract that basically says she is in charge of her own publicity and anything the studio does that hurts her career. Deleterious. She can sue. 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 So basically, RF has to concede in the moment he knows he's beaten, and Kathy has a five-year contract with the studio, so she doesn't really have a lot of options here either. And Lena has declared, you are going to be my voice from now on. You're stuck doing this. It's a real Ursula the Sea Witch moment. It is. So this is all backstage. So this is all backstage of the preview of the dancing cavalier and in a moment of triumph i guess this is bringing us to point five lena says you all do the talking for me so now's my chance to go do the talking and she gives a speech that does not go over well ladies and gentlemen stop that girl that girl running up the aisle stop her you heard and loved tonight. She's the real star of the picture. And we saw at the Royal Rascal premiere that they made a point of not allowing her to give speeches to the press and to the public, and she was kind of annoyed by this. And so now she feels like she is triumphant. She has locked in her control for the next several years. And so they're like, fine, go make a speech. And as she's making the speech, the audience is a little incredulous and they're saying, this is not your voice. We heard this voice. And somebody says, go ahead and sing for us. 
Like, let's hear the good voice. And so they decide that they are going to have Kathy standing behind the curtain singing and Lena will be on stage lip syncing so that it looks like it is her voice. It's worth noting, this is where our romantic conflict comes in. Between Don and Kathy, what it's very sh- short-lived. One of the shortest romantic conflicts in any movie I've seen. And I felt like it also was not, you know, some romantic conflicts are very clearly kind of artificially constructed, but I could understand this as a real romantic conflict where Kathy sees him saying, you know what, this is bigger than you, this is too important, you have to go be her voice, and she's frustrated because she feels like... Her partner is choosing his career over her career. And I think that is a very realistic thing that could happen. It is. And it's not like he's in a situation where he can tell her the plan because Lena's right there. Right. So she says, like, I'll do it. I'll sing behind the curtain. But Don, you and I are through. I'm not going to keep having this happen to me over and over again. So Lena runs back to the curtain when the maestro asks, what are you going to sing for us? She runs back to the curtain. Leans in, Kathy whispers, sing it in the rain, and then she starts singing, sing it in the rain, until Don, RF, and Cosmo pull open the curtain and reveal Kathy Selden to the world. And by that I mean- It's a real Lizzie McGuire movie moment. (laughs) Is Lizzie McGuire the modern day sing it in the rain? I am not going to answer this question, both because- I'm trying to keep the length of my podcast episodes under control. And because I think really to answer it, I would need to be able to take some time to think through my argument. And this is a question that deserves better than just a spontaneous answer. (laughs) Anyway, Kathy is really upset because she thinks at first that they've done this to embarrass her. And so she starts running out of the theater And Dawn shouts, no, stop her. That's the woman whose voice you just heard. She is the real star of the movie. And so it becomes clear that the real reason he did this was because it was a way to expose Lena without breach of contract. So then we get a nice shot of the two of them looking at a billboard for a film called Singing in the Rain starring Don Lockwood and Kathy Selden. Yay! Also, at one point, I think it was during the premiere of The Dancing Cavalier, Dawn says to Lena, it's over between us. It never was anything between us, but now it's truly over. Kathy and I are getting married. This is it. (laughs) I forgot about that proposal. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, they announced they're getting married. (laughs) Right. Unclear exactly how much time has passed since they started dating, but there were only six weeks between... Well, no, because they were dating before, because they were dating... Already when they had the idea to redo the movie. But it can't have been more than a few months. That said, given the time period, whatever. Not unbelievable, frankly. Yeah, which we'll get into in a second. But I think we're meant to believe once we see the two of them next to the poster that they now are married or... Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So after watching all this happen, do you guys find the romance between Don and Kathy believable? Okay, so I think the timeline actually is pretty believable. When you consider marriage in the 20s? Yeah. Yeah. People get married pretty quickly. Yeah. Now, I think you are right, Mark, that the basically immediate declaration of love on the Sunset Soundstage, which visually is a sequence I love, is fairly unbelievable. Yeah. Also, her reaction to him <laughs> jumping off a trolley into her car. It goes from animosity to love a little too quickly. I think that it's not, the entire concept of it is not totally unbelievable because she does see him caring about her and saying, 
I'm sorry you lost your job. I've been looking for you. And so if there had been just a little bit of buffer between that interaction and the declaration of love, like two days, that's all I need. Two days of nice, pleasant interaction between the two of them. And then honestly, I'll buy it. But I think the same afternoon was a little too much. Right, because she hears like, you've been looking for me. And her reaction is like, oh, what? You want to like make fun of me? You want to make it worse? And I mean, I'll say it was the right choice of the movie to not give us that padding but it did take believability points off so on our scale of zero to ten where zero means you believe none of the romance and ten means you believe all of it where would you rate the romance of singing in the rain what are you thinking rachel i would say a six that's what i was gonna say me too i would say it is slightly more believable than it is unbelievable so that's above a five but it is not truly believable it is just more believable than not yeah uh, it sounds like we're all on the same page Do you guys find don and kathy dateable kathy 100 percent. she is a superstar even beyond her film career i appreciate that she is portrayed as somebody who takes care of herself but the taking care of herself does not mean that she is opposed to romance and I think that that's another thing we sometimes see in movies a woman who really cares about her career and because of her career she just flat out refuses to be involved in anything romantic and we don't see that I think second half of the movie dawn is dateable first half of the movie dawn or even first third of the movie dawn I think is kind of a jerk who is too impressed with his own stardom yes agreed yeah I mean I think that's how I feel too uh dawn by the end of the movie definitely but Kathy a thousand percent and of course, the uh, who you would date in the movie, I see Rachel has added to the script, but it is the obvious answer. It's Cosmo. Yeah, pretty self-evident. Best answer, best brain, best face. Uh, Mark, do you think, or Rachel, either of us, uh, do we think that Don and Kathy would stay together? It's the 20s in Hollywood. So I was going to say 20s, yes. 20s in Hollywood, no. <laughs> but I also will say, once they do get together, everything we have seen from them is a very mutually supportive and caring relationship. And regardless of the beginnings of it, I would still say that that is suggestive of a future mutually supportive and caring relationship. Yeah, I think one of the exciting things about this movie is the way that they support each other professionally, which is not a thing that you would see in a lot of movies even today. The way that Don is, not in a patronizing way, protective of Kathy's career is a thing that I think is really cool. Right. I think that it is well set up for us to believe that they would stay together. And I do think that they'd stay together. But just based off of listening to You Must Remember This and Hollywood Romance in the 20s, (laughs) I don't know how, I don't know what the odds are there. It's a rough road. Now, before we get into the reality, (laughs) Hmm. should Singing in the Rain be made into a stage musical? I mean, it's, uh, yes, I don't know, maybe not. I think it's such a good movie musical. I think it's a very good movie musical, but I think that it also has elements that could turn it into a very good stage musical. And having seen and absolutely adored the stage musical of An American in Paris, which I think is a pretty comparable movie musical for a lot of reasons, I'm going to say absolutely. Um... I don't know that this is one that I would choose to adapt if I were making the choice because I think that it uses the techniques of movies really, really well. Even just in terms of things like showing other movies, which you can obviously do on stage with projections. But that element plus some of the ways that it uses color and and camera work. I mean, there's not a crane shot in this movie that I hate. It's so good at being a movie. Right. 
And it's about movies. It's not a thing I would choose to change. That said, of course, there is a stage musical of Singing in the Rain. It premiered in London in 1983, had a Broadway run in 1985. It was nominated for the Tony for Best Book of a Musical and lost to The Mystery of Edwin Drood. All right. I think that about does it for Singing in the Rain. Yeah, I'm glad we did this. This movie rules. This movie's great. If you haven't seen it, go watch it. Watch it on the biggest screen you can get. Next week, we will be doing a listener suggestion, Steel Magnolias, which was submitted to us by our listener, Catherine Kay. So keep sending in those suggestions. We're getting to them. I have no idea what Steel Magnolias is about, and I'm very excited. You're going to like it. Until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Reviews on Apple Podcasts in particular help other people to find the show, which is great. Last question. What's the best piece of dating advice you got from this movie? I think that, like with Cosmo, the correct answer is obvious, and it is to have a dance party. Which was also your advice on the Titanic episode. And love, actually. I think we've seen a theme here. My advice is support each other professionally as well as emotionally. My advice is be very clear about who you're not in a relationship with so that people you want to be in a relationship with will know that you're available. Mm, Good point. Well, there you go. Until next time, I'm gay. And I'm a ginger. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye! Thank you.